You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Governor Gretchen Whitmer holds a 5 to 9% lead over Republican challenger Tudor Dixon, depending on which polls you read. Governor Whitmer made the rounds on both Paul W. Smith and All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. Pleasure to welcome back. Uh, she's been a frequent guest. We just haven't talked to her in a while, but Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Governor, good morning to you. I know you have a busy day and a busy schedule all around because being governor and running for office take a lot of time. Nice to have you back. Good to be with you, always. Um, and today, in fact, you're going to be joined by one leadership, state and local leaders, as well as elected officials, to commemorate the opening of one's headquarters in Novi. You've had some good wins here. We have. And you know what? This was a conversation that started on Mackinac Island last spring, uh, chatting with the founder of Our Next Energy, looking to expand. And today we're cutting the ribbon on you know, the Gigafactory. It's very exciting. And we are securing the future of our economy when we build batteries and solve problems in, in terms of energy storage. And this is how we bring down prices and protect ourselves and ensure we've got energy. So it's exciting all the way around. All right. Uh, but then we get this. And who knew this was going to be on the front page as we had you on? This is just unbelievable to me. The headline in the Detroit News, at least, EV battery spending spree snubs Michigan. Feds announced $2.8 billion in funding for projects in 12 other states. And this is from the United States Department of Energy and Jennifer Granholm. What the heck? <laughs> well, I know. I, we all are a little miffed, but let's be honest. This is the first round of many grants we're going to be announcing. I think we've got a, a great opportunity in front of us, and we'll we'll stay at it until we win. That's our attitude. That's got to be our attitude. Let's work together and let's win for Michigan. So you, in the next round, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to see and expecting to see Michigan on the list. Well, have you called her and found that to be the case? You know, she has spent a lot of time with us as we've worked to solve energy issues and expand. And so I I do think that we've got some great great competitive proposals in front of them, and I think we're going to win some. All right. Well, I'll I'll let you get away with that. But I think you should call and say, what the hell? But anyway, uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just saying. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you all the conversations I have with the secretary. But no, I don't. rest uh, assured, she knows how strongly we are. Uh, we feel about this and the opportunity in front of us. So we're right. going to capitalize on it. All right. You made a lot of promises when you ran uh, for governor. You kept many of them. You couldn't keep them all. I, most of us were hoping when you said fix the damn roads that you meant immediately. But I guess if we really thought about it, uh, that's something that's going to take. Uh, in fact, as you, I think, recently put it, not even just two terms. It could take longer than two terms to fix the damn roads. Well, we're combating decades of disinvestment, and anyone who's watched just even some of the construction happening knows that when you rebuild a road, it takes a lot of engineering. It, I mean, it is an incredible undertaking, and they're doing, we're making huge strides. We're moving a lot of dirt. We've already gotten to 13,000 lane miles and 900 bridges. We'll get to 22,000, but, you know, we have 180,000 lane miles in Michigan, so it is a huge undertaking, but we are doing it in earnest, and I'm excited about putting our foot on the gas. All right. I, I give you credit for this. You may have used it as an excuse. I don't remember hearing you say it, but let's face it. Uh, COVID-19 upended your agenda. Uh, why wouldn't it? You spent two years with something none of us were expecting, uh, and that caused some issues and strained relationships with uh, the Republican-led uh, uh, legislature and all of that. Um, on the other hand, that pandemic did, according to... There's a great study out by Bridge, Jonathan Osting, uh, in Bridge, Michigan, that talks about uh, some of your promises and uh, how you did. I, I don't know if you saw that and if you agree with it or not, but I, I found it helpful. Uh, but as we know, the pandemic also led to a huge influx of federal relief and stimulus funds, which did help you achieve some of your goals. That's right. I mean, we have made record investments in public education. We have dropped the cost of skills for 180,000 Michiganders, and I just signed a big scholarship program into law last week that'll help over 80% of the graduating class of 2023. We have landed incredible investment in batteries and life sciences and semiconductors. There's a lot of good stuff happening. I still would like to get the retirement tax repealed, but of course I cannot do that unilaterally. I got a legislature I got to get on board, and they're not there yet. The Republicans won't. Won't do it yet, but I'm going to keep trying because I know that as we 
see inflation, we know that working families could use a break and increase in the earned income tax credit and retirees living on fixed incomes could use a break and repealing the retirement taxes are two ways we can get more money in people's pockets. I just need the Republican legislature to work with me on them. You did talk about uh, clean water, something that uh, it's a shame we even have to talk about it in this day and age, but we do. And uh, you did release a plan in 2018, a 14-page plan for fixing water systems and protecting the environment. Uh, How do you feel that has gone for you? We've made some progress. You know, we did get in the um, Infrastructure and Jobs Act a historic investment in replacing pipes. We know that there is old infrastructure all across this country. It's not unique to Michigan, and it's not unique to one community. This is a nationwide problem we're grappling with. Michigan now has the highest standards when it comes to lead and copper rule. We're detecting things faster than any other state is, and we've got to be nimble to address it. We are um, doing that in, in a couple of communities right now in Michigan, but there's certainly a lot more work to do. And I'll continue to work with the legislature. The $4.8 billion we have um, agreed on is being deployed, whether it's road, roads, bridges, or water infrastructure. We're doing a lot of work across the state. But as with roads, we're talking about decades of disinvestment that we are now tackling. And to solve the problem, you got to get started, and we certainly are. All right. One of the things a lot of people probably don't remember is you talked about wanting full-day universal preschool. We still don't have that in Michigan. How's that going? Well, you know, we have eliminated the wait list for GSRP. We have now uh, funded TriShare, which is an opportunity where the state of Michigan picks up a third the cost of daycare with the parent a third and the employer a third. So we've really made a lot of progress in early childhood education. Uh, I think there's always good, more good work to do, but we're really, I think, found some common ground, Republican and Democratic, helping families all across our state. And um, I'm, I'm pleased with the progress we've made and determined to continue it. Uh, in 15 seconds, a different approach or the same approach in the next debate? Oh, you know, I think this is a, another opportunity for people in southeast Michigan to see the difference here. It's pretty stark, and I'm going to put out my vision for what the next four years could look like. All right. Good luck to you, Governor. Nice talking with you. Don't be a stranger around here as we continue on WJR. It's so important for our listeners to hear directly from the candidates. Commercials alone just don't cut it. Joining us now is Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Welcome, Governor. Hi there. I'm glad to be with you. I appreciate you being here. People are asking, am I better off today than four years ago? Is the state better off? The people hired you once. Tell us briefly why they should hire you again. Yeah, well, you know what? Despite historic challenges, a global pandemic, a polar vortex, 500-year flooding events, tornadoes, despite all that, we have made real progress in Michigan. We have delivered the biggest investment in public education four years in a row. We're getting our kids back on track with investments to drop class size, wrap our kids with supports um, from tutoring to uh, literacy coaches and mental health supports to landing record investments in advanced manufacturing and semiconductors and life sciences that will ensure that there are good-paying jobs for generations to come here in Michigan, whether it's in big rapids with Goshen and and long-range batteries or it's at our next energy in Wayne County where I was today where they're building a gigafactory. There's phenomenal investment happening to secure future strong jobs. We have um, expanded access to health care. We are fixing the damn roads and bridges, and so we're making progress. I think this upcoming election is the question, are we going to keep moving forward, or are we going to go backward? And I say, let's floor it. You said Tudor Dixon is extreme on abortion, her only exception to save the life of the mother. She says your support for Prop 3 is extreme. It allows abortion up to nine months, sterilization, no parental consent. Do you support those three elements of Proposition 3? Well, you know what? Those three elements are actually not in Proposition 3. Proposition 3 is about protecting a right for a woman to make her own choices about her body and her health care. We know that there's a lot of people who would make different choices, but the vast majority of people in our state understand the only person who can make that decision, that assessment, is the woman who's being impacted. I think it's extreme to consider a 14-year-old rape victim a quote-unquote perfect example of someone who should not have access to reproductive health care. During your debate, the moderator, Rick Album, he did a good job. But at one point, he interjected his opinion on the issue of inflation and the economy. And he prefaced the discussion 
by saying the governor has very little that she can do to fight the cost of living in the state. Do you agree with that assessment? So we can we can we can and have actually done a number of things to help keep money in people's pockets. The governor can't impact global inflation, but what we can do is deliver relief to people, whether it's in the form of low or no cost child care, which we've expanded for 150,000 families in Michigan, or it is the 180,000 Michiganders who are signed up for tuition-free path to skills in higher education or in the trades. We're keeping money in people's pockets. I've delivered fiscally responsible budgets. We've paid down billions in debt, put a lot in our rainy day fund, and left money on the books. I would love to repeal the retirement tax and triple the earned income tax credit, which helps working families keep $3,000 in their pockets. It's homes of a million children in Michigan. That's how we help people who are really struggling with inflation right now. And that's those are my proposals that are are sitting in front of the legislature right now. You, you have said that Michigan is one of the fastest states to recover from the pandemic lockdowns, one of the strongest in the country. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it shows that Michigan is really about 43rd on that list in terms of employment recovery, uh, in terms of jobs. What were you referencing during the, the debate when you said that? You know, it's not my opinion. That's what the Bloomberg analysis did, Bloomberg Business said Michigan has the most robust um, recovery in our state's history and one of the best in the nation. If you look at pure unemployment numbers, you would see that our unemployment rate is as low as it was pre-pandemic. Now, as a state with a lot of people who are a, a little higher up in age, we know that some people moved up their retirement and didn't return to the workforce. And perhaps that's a little more dramatic in our state because we do have an older population. It's part of why the work that I'm doing to ensure that young talent will choose to come to Michigan and stay here is so important. We are growing our economy. We've got to grow our population as well um, and upskill our workforce. And that's what's centering so much of the work that we're doing. We want to make Michigan a place where young talent comes and makes their lives and stays here. On education, Michigan ranks near the bottom in test scores. Kids were kept home during the pandemic, which exasperated the problem. How and when will you get Michigan to the top 10 states in education? So we know that it was a global pandemic and the choice to bring kids home was was the same that every other state um, did. It was a little bit different depending on what state you were in because we were all left to fend for ourselves because there wasn't a lot of leadership at the federal level. Um, We took kids out of school for three months. And um, we did have a pause later. It was all pre-vaccine. Once we had vaccines and masks available, it was a local decision. Now, we know that there was learning loss. There always is in the summer. This was this dwarfs what we would see in a normal summer. And that's why the record budgets that I, bipartisan budgets that I worked on with the legislature that I've signed into law are dropping class size you know, tripling the number of literacy coaches in our schools. These are the ways that we help get our kids back on track. I want to expand that by putting a greater investment so that there is individualized tutoring going on all across our state. I think this is the way that we really can help the individual child meet their specific needs and get all of our kids back on track. Governor Gretchen Wimmer, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tudor Dixon also talks with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz about her positive momentum in the polls. Good Tuesday morning. Let's get right to it. We invited Governor Gretchen Whitmer and challenger Tudor Dixon to be on the show today. The election is in three weeks. WJR has a monster radio signal that reaches most of the state. We have a smart, well-educated, hardworking audience. Thank you for listening. The people who listen to WJR vote. The WJR audience cares about the community, so they vote. I pride myself on being fair. People who know me know I allow invited guests to speak their mind. Many listeners get mad at me for not being too confrontational. I don't care because I like to listen to a guest because if I listen I might learn something that I didn't know the governor declined our invitation this morning Tudor Dixon accepted and joins us now good morning Tudor how are you great thank you for having me appreciate you being here a new survey of 640 likely general election voters in Michigan this one commissioned by the white law firm and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters shows this race is much closer than previous polls suggest, with Governor Gretchen Whitmer holding a 48 to 44 lead over you, which is the margin of error. 47% of people in this poll also say Michigan is on the track, on the wrong track. What, what is happening here, Tudor? Is your message getting out and resonating with voters? Is this about the debate? Uh, wh- why, why do you see the surge at this uh, point in the, in the race? 
Well, I do think our message is getting out, but I also think people are realizing that there is no message on the other side. There is no plan on the other side. The debate, we had the debate and we talked about our education plan. I talked about our plan for a safer state. I talked about our plan to bring the economy back and bring businesses here and bring jobs here. And we didn't hear any of that from Gretchen Whitmer. People are realizing that her record is showing that she's not for bringing business here. She's not for families. She's not for being tough on crime. And that's hurting the state of Michigan. Yet that's why you see people saying the state is on the wrong track. The abortion issue separates the two candidates perhaps more than any other issue. The governor says you are too extreme on abortion. Exceptions only to save the life of the mother is not what Michigan voters want. Now, if you were to include rape and incest as an exception, you'd likely bring in more voters. If you included first trimester abortions, you'd probably win the election. Uh, Why won't you move off your position? And if you win, what is your plan to meet the will of the people on the abortion issue? Well, you know, and I know this is on the ballot. It's not only on the ballot, but it's also been decided by a judge. So my personal opinion on abortion isn't going to come into play for what is going to be the law of the land. A judge has already ruled that there will be no ban on abortion, and you have the most radical position possible on the ballot. So we'll either see that, which will be a constitutional amendment, and the governor won't have any say in what happens there, or we will see the judge. And my hope is that if the judge's ruling is is the, the ruling of the Supreme Court, that we will have the basic protections that we have always had in the state that Gretchen Whitmer is fighting against, making sure that we have parental consent for minors who want to seek an abortion, making sure that it is an actual medical doctor that performs an abortion, making sure that we don't have partial birth abortion. But this governor wants to make sure that abortion up to the moment of birth, she proves it with her voting record. She's voted against a ban on partial birth abortion. So when I say it's radical, it is radical. When I talk about what my plan is, I will always abide by the law. I want to make sure that we're safe and abide by the law. Not to mention tax dollars from people who 100% oppose abortions. They would be uh, paying for abortions under this new proposal. Gretchen Whitmer's plan on abortion is extreme. Do you plan to attack her in the final debate with your final push of commercials? Or will you avoid the issue of abortion down the stretch and, and, and look at other issues? You know, I want to hold her accountable to what her position is, but she just will not respond. You heard Rick Albin asked her two or three times to please clarify what her limits are. She wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't clarify. She has no limits. That's the reality. It's going to be really hard to get her on record saying that because she wouldn't respond to really any of the questions, no matter when her own record was questioned. She moved on. She pivoted. She ignored the question. That's that's a sign of what we would see in another four years. You've seen the most recent veto is to veto anyone questioning her emergency powers. We saw how that went in the first four years of her being governor. She doesn't want anyone questioning emergency powers. She doesn't want the legislature involved in any way whatsoever. She's telling you she's bipartisan. She has not worked with the legislature. Her, her even most recent veto show that. She claimed she was for protecting our deer hunters, but she vetoed protections for our deer hunters and now wants these our deer hunters to receive misdemeanors if they can't report their deer within 72 hours. How unreasonable is that? We have many deer hunters who are out there for a week or two at a time in an area where there is no internet service. There is no broadband. We don't have significant amounts of broadband across the state, and yet she's going to criminalize deer hunting? This is shocking. I saw your rally in Clinton Township uh, yesterday. You said that uh, one of your main focuses is to protect children and families. Uh, you spoke of the fifth of the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father. What is what is the plan to protect uh, children and families in Michigan? Well, you've seen what we've come out with with our plan to make sure we go back to the basics in kindergarten to third grade and prevent sex and gender talk from kindergarten to third grade. This is what we're, we see in Florida And it's critical here in the state of Michigan that we do this because we see that our reading scores are abysmal in this state. Our third graders, nearly 60% of them just failed in reading and writing. 
So why wouldn't we just say, gosh, it's, it's important to get back to the basics. That's first and foremost, protecting our youngest kids. But when we're looking at some of this radical stuff that you're seeing in Dearborn, you're seeing in Grand Rapids, you're seeing in, in Allegan, you're seeing it across the state, these, these truly pornography things that the parents are going and reading at school boards that I couldn't read on your radio show. And we're going to stand up against this. We're done with seeing pornography in our schools. We're going to stand against this. We're going to stand for the parents. And we've asked Gretchen Whitmer again, where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on the fact that the Department of Ed came out and said that they want to keep things from parents when a child is going through something and considering changing their gender? They are saying they think the parent is the problem and the parent is dangerous. When is she going to stand up and say, I actually stand for the parents? Well, she's not. We've clearly stated or we've seen that she's not willing to stand with the parents. I will always stand with the parents. At the end of the day, the final say on your child's education and safety comes from mom and dad. And that's why we say honor the mother and father. As governor, are there specific actions you can take to make sure that happens? Well, first and foremost, we're going to make sure that we stop any sex and gender talk from kindergarten to third grade. We've also introduced the Parents' Right to Know Act. And so that is going to be that every classroom should have their school, their class syllabus. So what they're teaching for the year, the outline of what they're teaching for the year on the website. So parents can see all the books in their library, in the classroom library need to be on that website and in the school library need to be on that website. And also trainings that the teacher has gone through need to be on the website. So the parents can clearly look. And if they don't like it and they talk to the school about it and the school refuses to do something, then that parent needs to have the freedom to take their child to a school that they feel is best for them, that they can focus on their child's education instead of being forced by the state to watch their child go through some sort of indoctrination. You know, we're out of time. I wish I could talk to you more. I want to talk about people leaving Michigan and your plan to get them back. I want to talk about crime. Uh, If you have time in your schedule, uh, please come back next week. We'd love to have you back again. Uh, Tudor Dixon, appreciate your time this morning. Two seats on the Michigan Supreme Court will be on the ballot November 8th. All talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. Spoke to four candidates looking to ascend or stay on the bench. Carrie Lee Morgan, running as Libertarian, joined them on Monday. We are getting fantastic calls today, and we appreciate you sharing your perspective and appreciate you being a part of the show. We will get back to your calls in a bit, but right now we are continuing our effort to keep you informed on the crucial election coming up on November 8th. There are five candidates for two spots on the Michigan Supreme Court, and you'll hear from all five of them over the next few days right here on All Talk. The Michigan Supreme Court currently leans left with more justices on the court nominated by Democrats than Republicans, but other parties are welcome to run for the state's highest court, and they do. Today, we interview our second candidate in our series, Carrie Lee Morgan, who is the Libertarian candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Hey, Carrie, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, doing great. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you uh, think you'd be a good Supreme Court justice. Well, sure. I'm an attorney here in Michigan. I'm licensed in Michigan and Virginia and the District of Columbia, as well as various state and federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, I also uh, served in the uh, Reagan and Bush administrations as an attorney advisor with the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights sort of back in the day. Uh, but I think I'd make uh, great justice because I have a, I can bring a natural law uh, perspective uh, to the court and its opinions, one that respects the written Constitution and uh, doesn't uh, make it up as you go along. Uh, that's important. Uh, people have been concerned about that. Uh, as a libertarian, how do you uh, differ from other candidates? Uh, how would that? How might that influence decisions you'd make from the bench? Yeah, uh, you know, the libertarians are very much interested in preserving freedom, uh, liberty. We have a great Bill of Rights here, or Declaration of Rights in Michigan under our state constitution. Uh, it's quite comprehensive, and I think that usually the major cases come down to uh, the exercise of a right uh, in the Constitution versus the exercise of some governmental power by the legislature or the executive branch. Um, A lot of those cases end up trying to minimize or reduce or narrow the rights rather than narrow or reduce or hold unconstitutional the power of the legislature or the power of the 
executive branch. And I think what we bring is a real respect for the rights of the people. They took time to put them in their constitution, and they meant when they said it that they had these rights and they shouldn't be uh, narrowed through judicial interpretation or construction. There's two proposals on the ballot that would could change Michigan's constitution. Uh, do you think it's a good idea to have proposals like this? Do you think these proposals maybe take us down a dangerous road of changing the constitution? Well, the constitution provides the people have the right uh, to uh, enact or adopt proposals and put them before the voters. Uh, as, tar- as far as the wisdom of the proposals, that's for an individual to decide. That's not a legal question per se until unless it's adopted and it becomes before the court. But, you know, this is sort of a form of direct direct democracy or direct um, legislation or amendment of the Constitution. I just say that amending the Constitution is uh, something that should not be undertaken lightly. And given the, uh, the entire political uh, matrix in which we're in today, I think it's all been much too quickly to get to the ballot. And people really aren't aware uh, of all the details and the implications. I think that's I'd, I'd be very concerned about that. Uh, I agree with you there. Uh, what made you decide to run? I think uh, it's important that people have another choice uh, on the ballot than the general options that the other major parties give give the people every two years. Uh, and that's why I ran to allow those choices, to allow people to have a uh, justice candidate that emphasizes their rights and freedoms more uh, and um, really embraces the idea that government should be limited and when it's limited, it operates in, in its best way. Are there any decisions that uh, the current Supreme Court in Michigan have made that really uh, worried you, bothered you, or that you disapprove of? Uh, I think uh, the uh, some of the um, uh, cases that deal with uh, no fault historically, you know, have precluded trial courts from... Um, Deal, uh, issuing summary judgment, basically. And so every every no-fault case ends up being a jury trial. I don't think that's what the original law intended. And I think the court uh, got it wrong. That's been in place for a number of years. Um, I think one of the uh, more superior cases they had was the Midwest case that was settled uh, last year. Uh, striking down all of the governor's executive orders on the separation of powers. That was a, a wonderful decision uh, that was uh, needed, badly needed, and sort of an example of what I'm talking about, of you know, preserving the right of the people and the Constitution they adopted, uh, not the one the other branches want to make it into. Do you feel that Michigan's Supreme Court is political, or do you feel that it's pretty independent thinking? Well, I think you have to realize that the court is first and foremost an arm of the government. Um, it's not a true independent branch, as judges like to think, well, they're independent. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Jefferson said that judges are no more or less uh, biased than the next person. They're no more or less uh, swayed by human passion. Um, they're people just like everybody else. And uh, it comes down to whether they have integrity to set aside those biases and say, look, uh, we're just going to apply the law as written. That's my job. And I'm not going to do anything else. And to the extent that people yield to those temptations, then, yeah, they become political or they be worse. They just become uh, extensions of their own will uh, rather than the will of the people as expressed in the Constitution. And that has to be. That has to be issue. So I don't think it's the political per se. I just think it's yielding to, you know, what do I want to do rather than what ought I do? And that's a that affects all all human beings and branches of government. When you look at the written word, how does the Michigan Constitution hold up to the uh, United States Constitution? Well, the uh, United States Constitution is more broadly worded and uh, supposed to have a statement more of principles as well as the rights, the Bill of Rights. We have uh, Article 1, the Declaration of Rights, very, very precise, very 
accurate. Um, I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room left in it. Uh, I'm I'm quite proud of our uh, Michigan Constitution, even though most of the discussion is about the federal Constitution. If somebody talks about the freedom of speech, they're usually talking about the First Amendment, you know, rather than, uh, you know, Article uh, 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution. But I think we need to pay more attention to our state constitution and the rights it gives because state constitutions can always provide greater protection to people than the federal constitution or even the federal courts give to the federal constitution. Carrie Lee Morgan, libertarian candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Do you have a website where people can find out more about you? I do. Uh, it's www.lonang.com. That has a lot of our writings, political writings, as well as uh, legal writings. We have some theological writings on there. Um, and uh, it's uh, there's probably enough on there to offend just about everybody. <laughs> we appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. You're listening to WJR 760 AM. Attorney Paul Hudson running on the progressive side. We think it's very important that you hear directly from the candidates. It gives you a chance to hear them in person in their own words. It can absolutely change your mind on who you vote for. There are five candidates for two spots on the Michigan Supreme Court, and you'll hear from all five right here on All Talk. The Michigan Supreme Court currently leans left with more justices on the court nominated by Democrats than Republicans. Our next guest is nominated by the Republicans and is our third candidate in our series. Joining us now is Paul Hudson, Republican candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Good morning, Paul. How are you? Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. I appreciate you being here. Can you tell our audience about yourself and why you think you'd be a good Supreme Court justice? Sure thing. So I I lead the appeals group at the Miller Canfield Law Firm, which is a law firm uh, based in Detroit been practicing law for 16 years, and I've specialized in cases in the Michigan Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals. I've handled over 150 cases there. Um, I was honored on Sunday uh, to receive an endorsement from the Detroit Free Press, and last week I was endorsed by the Detroit News. That makes me the only candidate endorsed by both the News and the Free Press, Um, and so I think that means we're doing something right here. Uh, how would things change uh, on the Michigan Supreme Court if you were elected to the highest court? Well, I, I believe firmly that we need our judges to be nonpartisan and fair and just uh, neutral umpires, uh, just calling balls and strikes. So um, to me, that's what this race is all about. We need to make sure that um, you know our judges, like a good umpire, uh, aren't making up the rules or changing a mid-game. The judge's role in our system is important, but it's limited, and it's just to uh, fairly apply the rules as written every time. Well, we love to argue with the umpires, uh, let them know when we think they're wrong <laughs> and when they're right. What what decisions have you seen from the current court uh, that maybe you uh, disapproved of or th- think they got it wrong? Uh, some specifics. Well, I, I just think that no matter the kind of case. I think it's a mistake to focus on any uh, specific case. We need our judges across the board um, to have a neutral judicial philosophy. Um, Even calling it a philosophy isn't quite right to me because it sounds like something optional, um, when to me the judicial role is is simple and it's compelled by the Constitution, and it's just to apply the law as it's written. Judges don't get to be the, the star players in our system. Um, and we really just want them to be uh, the fair umpires calling balls and strikes. Let me take another shot at that. Uh, is is it currently being called fairly with balls and strikes in your opinion? And we just need to have uh, the new uh, justices that come in continue to do what's already happening? Or do we need uh, people to come in that can encourage the current bench to call balls and strikes? We have a lot of great judges in Michigan, uh, truly, and we need more of them. And uh, to me, the the public needs to be able to trust that their judges truly are nonpartisan and neutral and are not just politicians dressed up in robes. Um, I think that's a a harmful trend, that it's becoming more acceptable for people to say, hey, you know what, Um, judges are just acting as politicians, so you know, let's just run for let's just run people that will advocate for our side uh, and against the other. And to me, that's really damaging to the rule of law. Um, and so my commitment is to be neutral and nonpartisan in, in every case. When it comes to the Constitution, what is your philosophy on interpreting it? Yeah, I mean, pretty simple. It's to apply the law as it's written. We all learned about the separation of powers back in 
uh, back in middle school. I've got two middle, middle schoolers right now, and they're, they're learning about it, too. Um, the legislature makes the laws, the executive enforces them, and the judiciary's role is, is limited but important. Um, it's not to make the policy or make the law or change them. Um, it is uh, simply to apply the law as it's written every time. Pretty simple. It doesn't mean it's an easy job. It's, in fact, uh, quite a difficult job in, in the toughest cases. But the job description is straightforward, and it's written right there in the Constitution. The Michigan Supreme Court actually hears quite a few cases, or they look over quite a few cases, more so than uh, what people uh, see coming out of the United States Supreme Court. Um, do you think that um, they have a, a healthy number of cases, or do you think there should be more or less? Well, I, I think it's important for the Michigan Supreme Court to be acting as uh, the Supreme Court. Um, Caseloads have, have fallen pretty dramatically in the past uh uh, decade or so. Um, and so I would like to see the court take uh, take more cases. Um, but look, I think people are realizing that the Michigan Supreme Court's really important. I don't expect that most Michiganders are reading Supreme Court opinions every day. Um, but they're just about every term, Michigan Supreme Court is, uh, um, is issuing decisions that are affecting all of us in, in some way. What do you think about the, um, not specifically the proposals that are on the ballot, but the idea of proposals on the ballot to change the Constitution? There's a lot of people talking about uh, how important this right is uh, in the state of Michigan to be able to change the Constitution, but also that it's something we should be careful with. Where, where do you fall on, along those lines? Well, it's, it's, it's part of our system to um, empower the voters to be able to amend uh, their Constitution. Um, I think it's important for judges and judicial candidates to realize that it's it's not appropriate for judges, uh, for judges themselves to to uh, amend the Constitution. And a judge's role is, is simply to apply the law, apply the Constitution as it's written. There's two uh, open spots, five people running. Have you thought about who you would like the other person to win along with you is that would make this court as good of a court as it could be? Well, look, there are a lot of good uh, good candidates in this race. Um, I'm running alongside uh, Justice Zara. I've uh, um, had the opportunity to argue cases in front of him. Um, I've handled over 150 cases in the Michigan Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, and I've always found Justice Zara very uh, very well prepared and his questions very insightful. Um, and uh, I th- think he's earned the right to uh, re-election. When you uh, think about uh, role models or mentors, is there anyone – in Michigan that you have looked up to, that you've tried to uh, mirror uh, their career, somebody who's inspired you uh, in law? Yeah, very much. So I clerked for uh, a federal judge named Ray Catholage on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And to me, he is just the absolute model judge, Um, truly independent thinker, um, just fiercely uh, independent and does what the law requires every time. Um, he's he's someone that uh, I I revere, and I've uh, uh, I've tried to model myself uh, after him. Certainly, you do appeals work for your law firm. How important is that uh, for having experience to be ready to go on day one? Well, I think it's very important. I think the best training to be an appellate judge is to be an appellate lawyer. Uh, the skill sets overlap. Um, a big part of the job. It's not glamorous, but it's it's writing right uh, for judges. It's writing the opinions. For appellate advocates, it's writing the uh, the briefs to persuade the court, um, and that's something I take tremendous pride in. And um, uh, I, I think there's a long tradition of appellate advocates uh, going on to be very good appellate judges. Um, that was the path that uh, my mentor, Judge Kethledge, took, for example. Paul Hudson, Republican candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. You're listening to WJR 760 AM. Kyra Harris-Bolden running on the progressive side. Uh, All right, 20 days out until the midterm election. We're going over a lot of different races. And on the ballot this November, a whole slew of very important races, including a couple of seats on the high court. In the state, we are picking two Michigan Supreme Court justices. There are two seats up on the Michigan Supreme Court with two incumbents in this race and three new candidates, five in total. And as a series, Kevin, we have invited all five to uh, join us on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. Yeah, and this next guest is the fourth candidate in our series. Joining us now is Kyra Harris-Bolden, state representative and Democratic candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and why you think you would be a good Supreme Court justice in Michigan. Absolutely. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. So I am Kyra Harris-Bolden. I currently represent Michigan's 35th House District, which includes the communities of Southfield, Lakewood Village, Beverly Hills, Bingham Farms, and Franklin. And I'm a lifelong resident of Southfield, Michigan. Um, I went to the University of Detroit Mercy School, Law for Law School, and Grand Valley for undergrad. Um, I practiced as a court-appointed criminal defense attorney before I transitioned to becoming a judicial law clerk in Wayne County Third Circuit Court under the Honorable Judge John A. Murphy. I then was a civil litigator at Lewis and Monday in downtown Detroit uh, before I successfully ran for office in 2018, uh, where I have served in my capacity as a state representative um, ever since. And we've been able to get five bills passed into law. And my work has been focused on criminal justice reform and protecting survivors of sexual assault and violence. And I'm running for Michigan Supreme Court because the stakes couldn't be higher. And it's important for people to know who is on the highest court in the state of Michigan. And I believe that I'm uniquely positioned um, to be on the court because currently there are no justices that have lawmaking experience. And when we're talking about statutory interpretation, I believe that that's incredibly important um, because I know um, how the sausage is made, so to speak. And that informs perspective, how the lawmakers actually think about the laws is important to interpretation. And I am excited to have potentially have the opportunity to share that with the other justices. Um, it could make a big difference in how uh, people see the cases that are before them. The court currently leans in favor of Democrats. Is there any concern that there be too many justices from one party or the other, in your opinion? Um, no, I, our justices are elected, and so it is the will of the people who they want to serve on those courts. Um, I believe that votes are earned, and um, it is up to the people who they want to see on those courts. You know, you spent uh, much of your career fighting for a lot of social justice issues, whether it be criminal justice reform, and as you mentioned, sexual assault cases, those types of things. What does that look like to you in the context of the state Supreme Court? I mean, how would the high court intervene on those issues and others, like maybe no cash bail or issues relating to equity within police departments? Yes, I don't think the role of the court is to intervene, um, but I do think that there is or can be a working relationship uh, between the justices and um, our legislature. Uh, for example, Justice Clement has testified before the Judiciary Committee, and I've worked with um, Justice uh, Megan Kavanaugh on legislation uh, regarding guardianship. And so, you know, there are opportunities to share how the, uh, the judicial branch would interpret the law, would interpret the law, and how um, the legislative branch makes the law. And I think that that is kind of the space um, that can be occupied in this moment. Um, but I don't think that it is, you know, the role of the court um, to, you know, be advocates for a particular issue. Um, the, their job is to interpret the law. But that doesn't mean that there can't be communication uh, when the laws are uh, being Formed. Uh, you and uh, both Richard Bernstein and you have both cited, you know, personal experiences. They're different personal experiences, of course, you and that he have. Uh, and he mentioned his struggle uh, with being blind as a kind of for him a prerequisite to being a Supreme Court justice. You've talked about being, you know, a pregnant woman is is something that really emboldened you to run for the seat. There are some who would say a personal experience could sway a justice away from the strict reading of the law or the Constitution as it stands. How do you balance your personal experiences versus the reading of the Constitution when you make a decision? Right. Well, I think that it's important for any judge or justice to have perspective, empathy, and compassion. I think it's helpful to have life experience because you're not looking at every case as a monolith. You have to see each case for its uniqueness and how that works with the law. Um, I think if you divorce yourself from uh, personal experiences or that of that experience of an everyday Michigander, I think that you're, you could be missing something. I think it's important to take in all the information possible and not look at people as uh, as a monolith, 
um, people in the court system need to be seen and heard, and um, their cases need to be evaluated for their uniqueness. And I think that's why it's important to be able to relate to um, an everyday Michigander and um, to bring that to the table as a justice. There are currently two proposals before voters to change Michigan's constitution. Do you think that should be something that is a rare event or should that be something that we see often in elections? Um, I don't have an opinion. I think it is up to the people of the state of Michigan on, um, you know, how often that occurs. And if people want to see it, you know, they'll have their opportunity to voice their opinion um, on the ballot. And um, as far as things getting on the ballot, if People don't want things on the ballot. They won't sign the petition. Um, So I think that that's a question left up to the people of the state of Michigan. Do you have any examples of decisions by the Michigan Supreme Court that you disagree with, that you think they got it wrong? Um, No, I I think that in the position that I'm in now, um, obviously, I might have some um, opinions, but at the um, but. I I wasn't at the table, right? The Michigan Supreme Court justices and judges have information that I don't have. Um, And they're evaluating the cases um, in a way that I have not had the opportunity to. Um, Just like in my um, work as a a legislator, sometimes I have more information than my constituents. And so my constituents may disagree uh, with a decision that I make, and then I sit down and have a conversation with them and let them know why I made the decision that I did. And so for me not being at the table, having evaluated the evidence or the case in the same way as the, um, as the Supreme Court justices, I think it would be unfair for me to um, make that judgment call. Uh, real quickly, I have a few seconds left. You, you feel our justice system right now in Michigan is not truly blind, that there are some members of society who don't receive the justice they deserve. How can that be rectified? You know, I think the most important thing for people to receive justice is, one, having access to justice. So that means not shutting people out of the system. And that means that the justice that you receive is not dependent upon how much money you have. And so that is something that we need to address in our justice system. We also need to make sure that people are seen and heard and not discriminated against, right? Um, that, that really influences the trust that people have in our judicial system. And so it is my hope that um, when people come to the courtroom, they feel safe, they feel seen, they feel heard. And even if things don't come out in their favor, that they feel like they had a opportunity to be heard for the the uniqueness of their case. Well, we thank you for your time and explaining your positions. Kyra Harris-Bolden, state representative and Democratic candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Of course, this is a nonpartisan court, I should say, a nonpartisan race. Candidate for Michigan Supreme Court. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. More to come. Uh, your calls, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Current progressive Supreme Court Justin Brian Zara, he's running for re-election. couple of seats up for a vote on Michigan's high court. Yes, we voters are picking two Michigan Supreme Court justices. Two of the candidates are incumbents. And three of them are new candidates, got five in total. And we are continuing our series right now, Kevin. We are uh, interviewing each of these five candidates here on All Talk. Yeah, I hope you've all enjoyed hearing from all the candidates uh, for the Michigan Supreme Court. We think it's important you get to know them beyond the commercials that you may see about the election. Our next guest was nominated by the Republicans as our final candidate in our series. He's also an incumbent. Joining us now is Brian Zara, Michigan Supreme Court Justice. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Appreciate you being here. Uh, what kind of advantage does uh, being an incumbent give you as far as experience uh, that other candidates who have not been on the court uh, may not have or don't have? Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question, Kevin. Uh, having served on the court, you know, you, 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 you do gain a certain level of experience how the court operates. You become more efficient. But my, my experience is even different from those on my court. I think, you know, I didn't take my decision to run for another term lightly. I'm running because I think I have a lot more to offer the people of Michigan and actually my colleagues on the court. The court has changed during my tenure. When I joined the court, every member of the court had prior judicial experience before joining the state's highest court. At that time, six of seven had previously served on the Court of Appeals and two of seven had served on the trial court. 
but currently five members of our seven-member bench never served in any judicial capacity of any kind before getting there. So I bring a perspective that they don't have. I've tried hundreds of cases as a trial judge. I've reviewed on appeal thousands more. I possess a wealth of knowledge and experience relating to uh, how the courts operate, how to apply statutes, how court rules impact the, the functioning of the courts. So it's just it, the experience is twofold for me. One, it's having served 12 years on the Court of Appeals has made me a, a better Court of Appeals. Just I'm sorry, 12 years on the on the Supreme Court has made me a better Supreme Court justice. But also my 16 years of experience as a trial judge and a Court of Appeals judge allows me to bring a perspective to the court that really is is lacking. That is an incredible transition from justices who have experience on the bench to justices who do not. Uh, let us inside uh, your world a little bit. Uh, how do these decisions get debated if they get debated? And, and what makes a good Supreme Court justice? How do they get debated? Well, of course they're debated. Um, you know, the Supreme Court does not have to take any cases. If uh, you know, you're entitled to your trial. And if you lose that trial and timely file your appeal to the Michigan Court of Appeals, you have a right to be there. But if you lose in the Court of Appeals, you don't have a right to come to the Supreme Court. You have to ask. You file an application uh, for leave to the court. And when that application is filed, it goes to a uh, commissioner's office at at the Supreme Court, 22, 24 uh, career people from varying uh, areas of practice prior to becoming commissioners. And they write up a report. The overwhelming majority of applications are denied. We're at like two or three percent actually get a grant. But then those reports, along with the paperwork that the litigants filed, go to every office. And at the end of every month, we have a date by which we will either accept the recommendation of the commissioner or if any one justice wants to hold it, it then goes to the to the full court for conference. We have weekly conferences, and at those weekly conferences, we'll hear and discuss any case where the commissioner's office has recommended that we take action, and we hear any case where one of the members of the court has decided that that, uh, we should look at it closer, notwithstanding the recommendation of the commissioner's office. And during that time, we will debate the case. And sometimes these cases are put off for more than a week, several weeks sometimes, and we write memos to each other. And ultimately, we'll take a vote. And if we take a vote to hear the case, then it'll be set for oral argument. The parties get an opportunity to file new briefs. We get those briefs. We have law clerks. Each of us have a staff of law clerks that help us uh, uh, work up the issues that we're most concerned about. Oftentimes, we'll exchange memo between the, the various memos of the court before oral argument to say where we're having our issues. And then we hear the case. So by the time it gets for oral argument, I would venture to say many times we know the case as well, or maybe a few times even better than the lawyers that are there to argue it. You know, you have said in your discussions that that politics has really entered into the judicial system at a pretty concerning rate, and that too often uh, justices or judges begin to consider what might be the outcomes of their decision rather than just making their decision based on the law or the Constitution as it is written. Should, should a justice consider the consequences of a decision or an opinion that is made on a case rather than just say, hey, this is what the law says, you know, so be it? Well, that's certainly my judicial philosophy. I have great respect for the separation of powers, the way the found it's a brilliant system that our founders put together. The lawmaking function rests in the legislative branch with the executive having the opportunity to veto or work with the legislature to make law. Our Constitution was ratified by the people. And of course, courts, of course, courts do have an obligation to make sure the other branches of government don't exceed their authority. But I am one that is uh, that, that respects and uh, the other branches of government as being co-equal branches of government. I believe it's the proper role of the judge to simply seek out what the law is, study the words. I often say we have to study the words at the time they were, by finding the meaning at the time these uh, laws were enacted, and then apply rules of grammar and try to give meaning to these laws. And sometimes it's still difficult, and there have been hundreds of years worth of uh, canons of constructions that have been compiled to help courts. But in all instances, you have to remain focused on the law and on the words of the law, and once you make a determination of what the law means, you apply that 
and let the chips fall where they may. And if it's if it's a decision that's unpopular or the people want to change, that change should come through the legislative process. Mm. Michigan Supreme Court Justice Brian Zara, who's who we're speaking with right now, you've done a considerable amount of work on trying to provide equal access to the court systems. You serve on the Justice for All Commission, and that's a passion of yours. I got to ask this: If the law already states that there should be equal justice for all, why is there a need for this commission? I mean, where's the breakdown that prevents equal access to the civil justice system? The breakdown is the fact that not everyone can afford a legal uh, a counsel, can afford an attorney. We all know by watching police shows on TV that in criminal context, you have a right to an attorney, and if you can't afford an attorney, one's appointed for you at state expense. In civil matters, there is no constitutional right to an attorney. And uh, I view it as an obligation of the legal profession to step up. We're all taught in law school, you should do pro bono work, and you should, uh, you should contribute to legal aid societies. And, and lawyers do this, but it's simply not enough. And in many instances, lawyers have simply priced themselves out of the market. I'm sure all of you have known people who've had disputes over, you know, three, $4,000 with a company, and you can't really go out and hire a lawyer to take care of this because the, the retainer often is more than the amount in dispute. So in particular areas like uh, debt, debt collection, um, sometimes landlord tenant, um, many areas in the, in the district court, family court in the circuit court, where people want to get a divorce, but they simply have no assets. It's very difficult to get through the process. And they're denied justice because they can't follow the rules. They don't understand how it works. And so this commission is looking outside the box. We have a regulatory reform commission where we're trying to, you know, things that might traditionally have been considered unlawful practice of law. Can we train and certify, for example, paralegals in certain aspects? Can they learn how to do family law, uh, divorces with no children? Should they be acting under a supervi- supervision of a lawyer, but, but then build out at a lower fee? Should they be able to act on their own? These are the things we're looking at, and I'm very excited about it. In addition, yeah. we're, we're revising forms. I mean, I can tell you as a justice of the Supreme Court, if I went into the district court and they handed me a form to fill out, I'm not sure I'd be able to fill it out without having Asking the clerk for some help. Yeah, you're right. It's a complicated process. A lot of help is needed out there. I'm, I'm glad you're doing that work. Brian Zara is the incumbent state Supreme Court justice running for re-election on November 8th. Brian Zara, thank you so much. Former Republican Secretary of State, now State Senator Ruth Johnson, running in the 24th when on Paul W. Smith Wednesday to explain why she's voting no on the transportation millage and Prop 2, which would expand early voting to nine days, expand access to absentee ballots, continue same-day voter registration, and allow people to vote by signing an affidavit if they don't have picture IDs with them at the poll. Yeah, at 40 degrees, right now 40 on our way to about 45 cloudy skies and uh, rainy conditions expected in about 40 minutes. I love how they put times on it like that. And and whether they're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. We're still impressed. But, but they're saying rain about 9 o'clock. Will anyone remember that at nine? Remind me, Sean. <laughs> Especially when it says like 100% chance of rain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, we were hoping to speak with uh, Senator Ruth Johnson, our former Michigan Secretary of State, and we're going to. Uh, what we hope for, what we wish for is what we get. Senator, it is always a pleasure speaking with you, and it has been for years. Good morning. Good morning, Paul W. How are you? I am excellent. I hope everything in your world is good. Uh, it's pretty good, except for, you know, it's the season when um, people lie about politics, and there's been some whoppers out there. So I'm glad you're letting me on so I can set the record straight. Well, it, it is the truth. There are so many lies out there, and, I mean, Some of them are pretty obvious when it gets to uh, Proposition 2, Proposition 3. I haven't taken a deep dive in any of the others. But, I mean, they just, they tell people what they know people want to hear. And people go, oh, okay, well, I'm doing that. Um, Let's talk about two things that I know you're very much invested in. One, uh, the headline, Oakland County voters divided over public transportation millage on the November ballot, we we heard from people who are very much for it, and we heard from uh, Rocky Rechkowski, 
who's very much against it. In fact, Rocky just says, vote no <laughs> on all of the, whatever the proposal might be, just vote no, he said. Let's start over. But what do you say, uh, given your experience regarding the public transportation millage for Oakland County? Sure. Well, we do need public transit, and we do have it. And um, I guess that's um, there's three lies that are being told to people. One is if they vote against this huge increase that would double the uh, the budget for transit, that they'll lose all their buses. That's nothing could be further from the truth. That's a hundred percent lie. That's manipulation, really, of uh, the voters. Half the money that comes in comes in from state and federal tax dollars. And uh, Commissioner Bob Hoffman has two resolutions waiting to make sure that they're paid for. We don't want anyone to go without a ride. So that's a lie. The other thing is we're told that um, continues local support and that uh, the locals will have uh, their say. That That's a 100 percent lie. It takes away local control from each of our city and township. Right now, they have to vote whether we'd like to add on additional services and then pay for them. And then the people have to vote. This puts Oakland County all in the um, same boat. We're all in the same storm, but we're in far different boats when you look at uh, how diverse Oakland County is. And then... um, you know, that they have the other lied that they say that these huge swats and they have a map that they've Woodward, the county executive goes around showing that we don't have a designated um, uh, transportation. That's just 100 percent false. I live in the northwest corner. We have one of the best systems going and we make sure that anybody that's a senior or has disabilities, we give them a ride to wherever they want. And we take them outside of Oakland County because we're less than a mile from Ascension Genesis Hospital. And our grocery stores are in Genesee County, too. So um, here's uh, the problem that takes away local control. It more than doubles their budget, an additional $660 million worth of property taxes. There is no plan. Trust me, I'm from the government is pretty much what they're saying. And uh, (laughs) it, it is. And what they have told us is that there'll be no patchwork for taxation but the same patchwork that we have now, other than maybe one or two other things added on. For now, I think they're in financial trouble. They didn't live within their means. They over over $100 million in um, uh, benefits for people that work there. They need to live within their budget. And taxing people's homes, I think, is one of the most outrageous things you can do. You and I remember in 1978, we voted for Prop A, which said a couple things. One is we're willing to pay instead of four cents, six cents on our disposable income for taxes. And we want to make sure that our food's not taxed at the grocery store. Pharmaceuticals aren't taxed. Our houses are brought down because of such high taxation in Michigan and capped. But now they start adding on these layers, this and that, and this is going to be $156, and that doesn't include the manufacturers, the stores, the restaurants, just our houses. All right, and- Senator, I, we we get it. You're against it. <laughs> I'm going to put you in the no side of the ledger with Rocky Rechkowski, but, but I don't want us yes. to miss this next one, and we only have two minutes, and that is okay. Proposal 2. This is right down your alley. You were Secretary of State of this great state of Michigan. Tell me about Proposal 2. I will, but I do have to say that it will stop us 90% of our rides in northwest Oakland County. We will not be allowed to go to hospitals or doctors. It's cruel. It's absolutely cruel. It's more than just financial. Vote and yes, no on as, two. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Or I mean, vote so, no on the pro- millage proposal. Okay. Now we have a minute. So real okay. quick. Oh, hurry. Um, okay, so 24 years ago, Larry O'Brecht and I were county commissioners, and we started the system. Half the money that goes to SMART is paid for by federal and state tax dollars. Uh, you're told, uh, so we've got that one taken care of. So now proposal two, it lies 100% on TV. It's a well-done commercial that says it will enshrine ID in the Constitution. It makes sure that there will be no ID required in our Constitution. That's a whopper lie. I find it to be very offensive. And then proposal two would instruct local clerks to mail ballots rather than the applications to absentee voters without a request. And that's probably the most disturbing because it means that um, Uh, that each of the election, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of ballots will be mailed to individuals that have moved or died. It just sets up a really bad system. Right now we have 103.7% of the eligible electorate registered to vote. That's bad news. So the ads lie, they're misleading, 
and it will hurt proposal two if it passes it will hurt election integrity totally and it, it is uh, amending our michigan constitution which is happening Absolutely. with uh, too fast and too easy uh, they gave me an extra 30 seconds so i'll just say this this whole idea that the democrats uh, continue to believe that minorities don't have legal id so they think well they only want legal id so that minorities can't vote this is so disgusting to me that what Democrat, what party movement has there been if they really believe minorities don't have legal ID? They should be working nonstop to be sure everyone has legal ID because you can't do anything in this country without legal ID, except if they get their way, vote. Thank you, Ruth. We got to go. That'll do it for this week's Pod Suey Voters Guide. Keep it tuned to... 760 WJR and thegreatvoice.com all election season. See you next time.